Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 32nd episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing how the Russian Civil War in Central Asia affected the Alash Orda's relationship with Bolsheviks. begin, did you know that we have a Patreon? And if you sign up now, you could listen to this and all future episodes before anyone else. You'll also get access to awesome perks, such as exclusive episodes, including our upcoming episode on the Osipov Uprising of 1919, book reviews, your name read at the end of every episode, and other cool perks. Your support will go towards making this channel better by allowing us to cover even more topics at once and across a wide spectrum of platforms. So please join now. Time for our Making History segment, and there's a lot. First and foremost, if you are not vaccinated, get the vaccine. If you are vaccinated, keep wearing your mask and help the people around you get vaccinated. As of September 2nd, the United States has lost 684,000 people to COVID. This virus isn't a hoax or some strange way to infringe on anyone's rights. The only way to stop this pandemic and to protect your loved ones is by getting the vaccine, wearing a mask, and limiting social gatherings as much as possible. As of August 31st, the United States finally pulled out of Afghanistan, ending a 20-year-long war. I don't care what your thoughts are about ending the war, I want to focus on the people the United States and their allies left behind and the refugees that need all the help we can give them. Currently, we have a page on our website uh, called Helping Afghanistan, and it lists the many ways you can help and the many organizations, both international and on the ground, who still need donations and assistance. Um, but some of the biggest ways you can help are, one, don't humanize or normalize the Taliban. Two, volunteer for local resettlement agencies such as LIRS, the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, IRC, the International Refugee Committee, World Relief, USCRI, U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, HIAS, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. All of these agencies have a home office, but they also have um, countrywide offices. So just go to their websites and find the one closest to you. They are desperate for volunteers and donations. I'm looking for a script on what to say, but we need to call our representatives and pressure them to undo the damage that the Trump administration caused to our immigration system, starting with the SIV visas. There are thousands of Afghans who are in danger because of the Taliban, and they have been waiting years to come to the United States through our immigration process. Like They're going through the process, but they've been waiting for like, you wait for like five years. Well, everything that they go through is ridiculous. Um, I used to work at the Refugee Processing Center, so I can tell you stories. But we just we need to pressure our, our representatives to not forget them, either if they're still in the country of Afghanistan itself, or if they're in neighboring countries, or they're being held by allies and waiting to come to the United States. We cannot abandon them. Um, as soon as I find a script that I think is useful, I'll provide it in the description and add it to our website. Also, if you work in the media or you have connections with your universities, pressure them to serve as sponsors for artists, journalists, and activists who are being hunted down by the Taliban. Um, and then fourth, donate to or organizations that are still on the ground. I'm trying to figure out who needs what, but some standard orgs are 
UNHCR Afghanistan, the Halo Trust, Women for Afghanistan, the Children of War, and there are two animal rescues still in Kabul. The Nalzad Rescue and the Kabul Small Animal Rescue. Nalzad's founder, Penn, got out with the animals, but his staff are still in Afghanistan, and they desperately need help. So um, if you're in the UK specifically, you can call your MPs and pressure them to help his staff. No one associated with Kabul Small Animal Rescue. Neither animals nor people got out, including the founder. She's still there. But honestly, I'm not sure what their status is beyond the fact that they're still in Afghanistan, but they still need help. We'll place links to all the orgs in the description, as well as a link to our Help Afghanistan page, which has more organizations and other ways to help. We'll update that page as often as we can. The last few weeks have been horrible in terms of natural disasters. Around the same time the news hit about the Afghanistan withdrawal, Haiti was hit by an earthquake, and they still need donations and assistance. But you have to be careful who you donate to, because Haiti has been screwed over many times. So people on the ground are asking you not to donate to Red Cross. Instead, you should donate to the Folkal Haiti Relief, the Aiti Demon, and the Saren Sisters GoFundMe, Partners in Health, all together for Hillside Haiti and World Central Kitchen. Some relief orgs you to donate to help Ida's victims are Imagine Waterworks, Cajun Navy Relief, Rebuilding Together New Orleans, and again, World Kitchen. And then finally, Texas, effectively overturning Road versus Wade. Not only has Texas banned abortions after six weeks, which is useless because many people don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks, they've also put um, a bounty on anyone who helps a person get abortion, and they've created a, a snitch website for people to turn in people who are getting abortions who are helping with the abortion process, or even just like caring for pregnancies at this point. And the icing on the cake is that Texas is also challenging a law that protects Native families in child welfare and adoption systems, which would make it easier to resurrect the old American tradition of taking Indigenous children from their families and culture. The one thing that I will stress about this abortion debate is it needs to be said is that this doesn't only affect affluent white women. It affects everyone who can get pregnant, including people of color. Um, indigenous people, non-binary people, and men, trans or otherwise. So please, if, if you're in this fight, center those people, center people of color and center people who are trans or non-binary. Right now, the best thing we can do is donate to organizations in Texas who are trying to fight this ban and still provide care to people who need it. Um, so some of those organizations are Planned Parenthood in Texas, ACLU of Texas, and keep our cl clinics, um, and also check out National Abortion Federation, NNAF, Abortion Funds, and Abortion Care Network for a list of dozens of other local organizations that need help. I'll share concrete actions and asks as soon as I see them. And now, after all of that, time to discuss the Alash Orda and the Bolsheviks. When we last left the Alash Orda, it was 1917, and they had just declared the Alash autonomy a Kazakh state that extended over most of modern-day Kazakhstan. It is now 1918, and the Russian Civil War stands at the gates of the Alash government. The Alash order know that they can't avoid this war, and if they don't attempt to negotiate with either side, they're going to lose their newly won autonomy, and it will be steamrolled by the victor. Their options are negotiate with the Bolsheviks, or with the conglomerate of anti-Bolsheviks, who we're going to call the White Army or White Movement for simplicity's sake. As you can imagine, this, is, this topic is very, very big, and so we split this episode into two parts. This first episode is going to talk specifically about the Alash Orda 
and the Bolsheviks, and we'll focus more on the Bolsheviks policy side. And then the second episode, we'll talk about the White Army or the White Movement and the Alash Order, and we'll focus more on the military situation. The first thing we need to understand is that the Russian Civil War is a ridiculously large conflict. To steal from Douglas Adams, the Russian Civil War is big. You may think your father's ongoing feud with your great aunt is a long and complicated mess, but that is peanuts to the Russian Civil War. And so, while this podcast has been focused on Central Asia's role in the Russian Revolution and Civil War, we have to acknowledge that the Bolsheviks and the White Army are responding to the Civil War as a whole, and that there are things that are happening in like Poland or Ukraine or Finland or South Russia that are driving their decisions. We'll try and mention what those things are if we think they're important, but just keep in mind that there's a lot more, there's a lot of dynamic going on beyond Central Asia, but we're just focused on Central Asia because again, Russian Civil War is big, and this is the best way of handling it. But before we can talk about influences, we must ask, who are the Bolsheviks? Everyone has an idea of who the Bolsheviks were, but for in terms of this podcast, what do we consider a Bolshevik to be? So a Bolshevik is a member of the minority party that is on the left, heavily influenced by Marx, and they and the party either missed the February Revolution in 1917, cough, cough, Lenin, or were caught completely unawares of the revolution. So even though they use this language of, like, we stand for the revolution, you know, with the vanguards of the revolution, they did not plan the revolution, they didn't start the revolution, they kind of took it over. They used the revolution to gain enough power within the provisional government to undermine Kerensky's government. Once they are in power, after the October Revolution, the Bolsheviks tried to create a communist state while pulling out of a world war and collapsing into a civil war. The Bolsheviks tried to reshape society and export their views of communism to the rest of the world, but we're still stuck thinking of security in imperialist terms and having to reformulate communist principles to meet the demands of a nation in the middle of a massive civil war that was recovering from complete governmental failure and massive losses from the world war and just territorial disintegration. They had set themselves up like an impossible task. Then I don't think there was any way that they could have kept ideological purity and survived this many crises. In some ways, they were crippled from the start by Lenin's belief that a revolution could only succeed if a dictatorship of the proletariat led it and that there had to be a centralized one-party system of government to ensure the complete transformation from a capitalist society to a communist society. As we see, this type of government leaves itself open to corruption and strongmen, such as Lenin himself and Stalin. His ideas also get infused with this concept that the dictatorship of the proletariat cannot be dismantled until the revolution is achieved. But since the Bolsheviks exist in a world that was still very much at war and very much still imperialist and capitalist, and your revolution does not pick up in the major industrial cities of countries like Germany or even England, your revolution is always in danger. And so the strong men never fully goes away. They meant well. I do, I do think they meant well. But I think just the conditions that the Soviet Union was created, the conditions that the Bolsheviks gained power and prevented them from achieving professed goals and turned into something that was horrendous and bloody and genocidal and authoritarian. For the purpose of this episode, though, the Bolsheviks' main concerns were as follows. So one was the Brest-Litovsk Treaty 
is signed on March 3, 1918. This treaty forces Russia to renounce all territorial claims over its European domains, such as Finland, Ukraine, and the Baltic states. But, I mean, even when they were signing it, Russia was very clear, like, yeah, we don't really mean it. So, in a weird twist of fate, the anti-Bolshevik Ukrainian government was invited to the negotiations and was recognized by the Germans before the Bolshevik government because Trotsky was having a fit over the treaty terms. While this ends an unpopular war, it's not great for a new power, and it hurts the Bolsheviks' attempt to create communist buffer states. Russia was so fragile right now, the last thing the Bolsheviks needed was a German buffer state as neighbors, assuming Germany won the war. 2. The communist revolution is stalling in the West. Bolsheviks will hold out hope for a massive workers' revolution in Germany, but even with the later events in Hungary in 1920, it becomes clear that it's not going to take off in the West which leaves the East. 3. The Bolshevik Front is huge. They have issues all over. Issues with Ukraine, issues with the Caucasus, issues with the Baltic states, internal troubles with peasants, ally interventions who do not like the Bolsheviks. The Czech Legion is just running around, uh, taking over the Trans-Siberian Railroad between Lake Baikal and the Ural regions. And then we have this problem in Siberia. Siberia gets rid of the Bolshevik Soviets, declares itself independent. It's now ruled by the provisional government of autonomous Serbia. The white movement is establishing itself there. By mid-1918, the white army controls the cities of Samara, Saratov, and Omsk, cutting the railroad that connects Russia with its Central Asian territories. So even though the Bolsheviks in like Moscow, St. Petersburg, are able to communicate with Soviets and with people in Central Asia, um, that railroad is controlled by the White Army. And so they can't, the Bolsheviks can't send men down in Central Asia at this point. By September 1918, the anti-Bolshevik forces have come together in the city of Ufa and created the provisional all-Russian government headquartered in Omsk. So things are not looking great um, for the Bolsheviks. Not necessarily great for the whites either, but that's like a different story. So that's what's facing the Bolsheviks, though. Where does that leave the Alash Orda? The Alash Orda want a partner that will recognize its right to self-determination, but is not asking for full independence. Their ideal state is a Russia ruled by a democratically elected all-Russian constituent assembly, in, this, in which the Alash Orda would have self-determination within their own state, but still remain part of the bitter Russian whole. This was a realistic position developed from the knowledge that the steppe land um, was integrated into the political economic system of Russia, and to, to uh, sever those ties would be catastrophic and maybe even impossible. And it is consistent with their asks of the Tsarist government. They never wanted to break away from Tsarist Russia, they just wanted more rights within the existing system. However, like their Kokon counterparts, the Alash Orda are not getting along with their local Soviet neighbors. There are minor clashes. The leaders of the Alash Orda are wanted and have bounties on their heads. And this made some wary of the Bolsheviks. Um, it is also a continuation of the ongoing struggle between the Russian settlers and the indigenous people of the steppe that has been going on since Russia decided to send people into Central Asia. So you still have some old dynamics going on, despite the Bolsheviks' claims that they want something new, they want to be different. Yet at the same time, the Alash Order are still willing to negotiate with the Bolsheviks, especially since the Bolsheviks have been signaling that they are welcoming their Muslim brethren and want to honor quote-unquote self-determination. 
But we'll quickly see that the Alash Order's definition of self-determination is not the same as the Bolsheviks. As we mentioned, the Bolshevik priority is maintaining some sort of Russian integrity. Their solution is to capitalize on people's grievances with the Tsar system and by extension the white movement, uh, who honestly don't help their own cause at all, but we'll get into that in the next episode, and turn that grievance into support for Bolshevism. One way to do this is to champion a form of federation. It's to champion a form of federation. In January 1918, the Third All-Russian Congress of Soviets adopt a Declaration of the Rights of Laborers and the Exploited People. This says that all peoples of Russia's had a right to, quote, adopt an independent decision at their own plenipotentiary Soviet Congress, whether they desire and on what foundations to participate in a federal government and in the rest of the federal Russian institutions. And this is from... Um, Dina Amenzolova's article, Kazakh Autonomy and Russia, the History of the Alash Movement. Stalin would later elaborate on this idea of self-determination through federalization by arguing that, quote, for this reason, in practice, we ought to restrict the application of the principle of self-determination to the approval of a Congress of the Republics entering into a Soviet Federation, and that, quote, the principle of self-determination must be a means for the struggle of socialism. And these quotes are from Amenzolova's article. Starting in January 1918, the Bolsheviks used various committees and congresses and commissariats to manage the rapid descent into never-ending autonomous states. This, includes, this included creating a commissariat for inner Russian Muslim affairs, which consisted mostly of Tatars and Bashkirs, as well as the People's Commissariat for Nationalities Affairs. These commissariats created departments to manage the many peoples of the Russian territories and reached out to local representatives to assist in their efforts. The key point for the Bolsheviks was ensuring that these autonomous states were consistent with Bolshevik principles and ruled by Bolshevik supporters. Their first attempt at establishing a republic from the top down was the creation of the Tartar Bashkir Republic. Created on March 22, 1918, the republics assumed local actors and organizations and placed the in initiative within the hands of the Bolsheviks and their supporters. They took this model and tried to expand it to other autonomous states. On March 28, 1918, the Alash Order received a request to, quote, immediately send represent representatives to organize a commissariat for Kyrgyz affairs for work in the implementation of a Kyrgyz state. Again, quote is from Amanzolova's article. The Alash Order and the Bolsheviks both seem to be to have engaged with each other in good faith. As of April 1918, the Bolsheviks seemed willing to recognize the Alash autonomy, on the condition that the Alash Order acknowledged the power of the Council of People's Commissars as a central power and recognized the power of the local Soviets. If they did this, the Alash Order would have the power to organize a commission for the convocation of the Republic Constituents Assembly. Their part, the Alash Order seemed willing to recognize a central power within the Soviet Federation, but were less willing to acknowledge the power of the local Soviets. The Alash Order proposed that the Alash autonomy would retain the highest legislative and administrative power until the commission could be called and a republic established. They were also willing to allow the Soviets to retain local power, but it had to be, quote, organized on democratic principles with observance of proportional representation from the nationalities. They proposed that in places where there were no Soviets, then the power would fall to the Kazakh committees, city administrators, and courts, 
and they wanted the right to create a people's militia. This was unacceptable to the Bolsheviks. The main problem was that the Alash Order and the Bolsheviks were approaching the same problem with ideologically opposed solutions. The Alash Order desired to create a cadre of leaders who would be equal to their fellow Bolsheviks and organize society along a nationalist line. The Bolsheviks, on the other hand, were approaching state-building from a class-based viewpoint. They wanted to take power away from the ruling class and hand it to the masses, thus converting a nationalist autonomous project into a Soviet autonomous project. The People's Commissariat for Nationalities Affairs said that, quote, the lack of desire on the part of the bourgeois national groups to recognize local Soviets as they're striving to transform autonomy into a tool for enslaving the masses, only on the basis of local Soviets, on the basis of the recognition of their, recognition of their power, was the formation of the autonomies of the Kyrgyz, Tatar, Bashkir, and other peoples possible. Quotes are from Amonzolova's article. The Bolsheviks rejected the idea of a system of government built on minority and majority nationalities and wanted to use class as the core principle of government. While this sounds noble, it's really no different than a power, like the United States, for example, creating a new system of government based on democratic principles. The idea that we take the power away from the aristocrats and hand it to the masses, and then, hey, we'll have democracy. Very similar here. The Soviets think that they can just take power from the powerful, give it to the masses, and you will have communism. The Soviets were talking about state autonomy and local power, but it had to be on the Soviets' terms. I would not say that the Bolsheviks were attempting to colonize Central Asia in 1918. We didn't have that debate about what they were doing later. But at least in 1918, that wasn't their plan. But there is a fine line between discussing the future of an autonomous state with political and intellectual equals and trying to force down a political philosophy onto local peoples without taking into consideration their own expertise or even the obvious fact that by Marx's own logic, Central Asia was not a state functioning along the terms of class. The closest they came to acknowledging this was during a session of the executive committee of the Saratov Soviet of Deputies. Quote, There is nobody from whom they, the Soviets, can be comprised. There are virtually no workers, nor are there really any soldiers to speak of. We only have the Zemstva institutions, which the center has decided to preserve. Quote is from Amazolova's article. This is an important thing to understand, because the disconnect between the Bolshevik approach to state building and the approach of the indigenous people of Central Asia will be a thorn in the side of the Bolsheviks from 1918 and beyond. The relationship between the Alash Order and the Bolsheviks worsened, and by May 1918, the Bolsheviks saw the Alash Order as no different from the other bourgeois parties, such as the cadets. For their part, the Alash Order were angry at the Bolsheviks' refusal to honor their proposal. They were also alarmed at the growing conflict with the local Soviets, the increased violence that came with being in the backyard of a civil war, and the mass starvation that was affecting Central Asia. They argued that, quote, the economic disintegration, the foodstuffs collapse, the complete disorganization of transport, the killing off of the country's trade and industrial life, the robbing, the looting of people's livelihood, and the complete absence of even a semblance of any law and order. All this poured fuel on the fire and led its citizens' hatreds towards the Bolsheviks, people everywhere prepared for an overthrow. Unable to compromise with the Bolsheviks, the Alash Order looked to their other allies. Relying on their former relationship with the cadets and the Siberian government, the Alash Order had been one of the first governments to recognize the Siberian autonomy as a real government, they turned to the white movement. 
So by May 1918, the Alish Order had thrown their lot with the White Army, raising local militias and fighting alongside the White Army's forces in Siberia, hoping it's all hope that they would find support for their dreams of a federation made out of equals within the anti-Bolshevik conglomerate. Their hopes would soon be dashed by reality. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and on Instagram, Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Please join our Patreon, as I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, get your vaccine, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.